You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, uh, visitors, guests, for choosing to be here this day. We are grateful that you have come to worship with us at Grace Community Church. You know what it's like when you're a kid and you go somewhere that's just magical and you say to yourself over and over, I can't believe I'm here. This is the greatest place. You just keep talking about it. Well, I kind of feel that way about these three words together. Annual church meeting. Annual business meeting. I love those three words strung together, and I just can't get over it. But I hope you will be here December 8th. I believe youth will be in here, and we'll be meeting in the back. So plan to be here. And speaking of youth, even younger, we need children's workers uh, for children's ministry, children workers, children ministry workers. So please see Keisha if you are willing to serve. We've got a lot of people that went through Grace Connection yesterday and this morning. So maybe we'll get some help there. But we really need help with children's ministry. Well, it's Thanksgiving week and we have so much for which to be thankful. We also have... So much about which to be anxious. So which will it be? Are we going to nurse our fears and grievances? Or will we commit to a spirit of gratitude despite our plight, despite our circumstances? Will we commit to that gratitude? Many of us tend to do both. And that may be more okay than you think we're going to see it in the text today. Allison has said two to three times lately, uh, lately Allison is my lady wife. Um, she, she said two or three times, a lot of people are experiencing pain these days. I've never heard Allison say that. That's the kind of line that I would use a lot because, you know, I see something, oh, it's the most... Uh, grievous or most difficult but when Allison says it you know that a lot of people in her world are suffering and it's kind of like the Job effect isn't it when it rains it pours one thing happens another thing happens about the fourth or fifth time you feel like looking to the heavens and say really saying really (laughs) this really right now Such a reflexive response might be natural, but it's not the only option available to us. Psalm 86 will give us perspective and a strategy for dealing with troubles. I wanted to preach from Psalm 86 this past summer, but I just didn't find a spot to fit it in. And my prayer is that the timing is just right for you. We begin Advent next week, finished up Titus, so it's a good spot for Psalm 86. And again, that was planned a long time ago, even though I just thought of it three or four weeks ago. It was planned that Psalm 86 be our text this morning. So if you were to eliminate only one of your troubles, 
what would it be? If you could just get rid of one thing, what would it be? You might be like the little boy who found the bottle with the genie. And the genie said, I will grant three wishes for you. And the little boy said, I wish there were no math. He's a a boy after my own heart. I wish there were no math. And the genie said, done. You have no more wishes. (laughs) So... I figured you'd get it sooner or later. I don't usually tell those kind. So, so, so how should we respond to hard times? Now, if you attempt an answer, make sure you're thinking about your own, own circumstances. You need to earn the right to throw something like Romans 8.28 around. Can't just go around telling people, this is how you need to respond to your... So think about your own... How should we respond? Derek Kidner calls Psalm 86 a lonely psalm for multiple reasons. Not only is Psalm 86 David's only psalm in book three of the Psalms, but it is apparent that he's in a dangerous place and he's lonely deceitful and ruthless men are seeking to destroy he doesn't know who to trust ever been one of those places you think you've got a lot of people that you can trust and all of a something all of a sudden something happens and it's like the ground beneath you starts to shake and you're not as certain as you used to be it becomes clear as the psalm develops that david recognizes his unworthiness to receive help from the Lord. And I bet you've been there too. You get in a crisis and you start to call out and you're like, oh no, I can't. I've been struggling with this sin or that's happened lately in my life. I haven't been paying attention. I haven't been spending time in the word. But it's the very reason God brings those crises into our lives a lot of times so that we will call out to him. So David recognizes his unworthiness to receive help from the Lord, but he leans into Yahweh's goodness and faithfulness and his forgiving nature. David identifies his need at the beginning and at the end of Psalm 86. And in the middle of the psalm, he sets his heart to affirm the character of God. The God who is committed to his people. David's spirit of gratitude is deliberate. You may feel as though it's hypocritical to give praise to the Lord when there's so much wrong about your heart. But remember Pat Anderson's encouragement. It's never hypocritical to obey. So Psalm 86. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. It's our custom to stand while the scripture is being read. And I thought about just working through this text without reading it. But let's read it. I want you to see the flow of this psalm. Incline your ear, O Lord, Yahweh, when it's all caps. Incline your ear, Yahweh, covenant God who loves his people. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. For I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. 
Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, the the maker of all nations, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me, You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them. But you, oh Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. Well, in seminary, and several of you have, that are in here have gone to seminary. In seminary, those who are called to preach learn that the first task in building a sermon is to identify the big idea of the text that you're going to be preaching. The sermon will then be built around the big idea. I've always struggled with the notion that there is a pr- primary Uh, text or primary single primary focus of every paragraph or story in scripture and all else is tertiary to the main idea I cannot tell you how unsettling it has been much of my life to think I can't be right and everybody else is wrong and it's not the point that I'm right and they're wrong or they're right and I'm wrong Finally, about five or six years ago, I heard Tim Keller in a Q&A respond to someone who asked about the big idea. And he said, I don't know. I know it helps a lot of pastors, but I've just never been able to reduce a passage of Scripture to one single idea. And that was quite a relief. Now, if you're suspicious that I'm telling you this today, because I'm insecure about the focus that I've chosen for Psalm 86, you might be on to something. To give you an idea of the challenge of declaring the main theme of Psalm 86, here are a few of the titles that I found as I was preparing for this message. In the day of my trouble, 
All the nations will come and worship before you, Lord. Times change, God unchanged. Prayer of a persecuted saint. So you can see how many different themes in, are in the subject lines of the different commentaries and, 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 and Bibles that I, I looked at. I, I've chosen to focus on the theme of forgiveness and gratitude. Our greatest need, which is forgiveness of our sins, has been met. Be thankful. From the outset of Psalm 86, David calls for the Lord to hear his humble servant. Poor and needy, as David describes himself, is a good posture for anyone, whether in good times or bad times, to approach the Lord, to to recognize our need for him, his greatness, and our lack of good to bring to him. So poor and needy. You may sense that David is proud in verse 2 when he identifies himself as godly. Preserve my life because I am godly. In other words, it's like, Lord, you owe this to me. Now, I'm expecting you, but that's not it at all. It comes from a Hebrew word, chassid. Chassid. It's not hesed like last week, but chassid. C-H-A-S-I-D, the literal translation. It'd probably be an H if you see it. Or literal transliteration, I I should say. And and, and this Hebrew word has multiple meanings. The the Hebrew language is a stingy language. And so one word can mean a lot of things. And this word uh, has covenant implications. It's translated loyal in some uh, translations. Old Testament scholar Alec Motyer translates the first portion of verse 2 in this way. Keep my soul because I am beloved. See that covenant relationship between Yahweh and his people? David is saying, I know who I am apart from your goodness Lord, I appeal to you on the basis of your love for your people. It fits the rest of the verse. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. In these first three verses, we find David humbly approaching Yahweh in faith, asking for grace. The urgency of David's prayer hints at his troubles. But rather than accessing all that was available to him, David recognized his hope and his help was in the Lord. And so he called out day in and day out to the Lord. He maintains his focus in verses 4 to 7 by declaring that his trust is in the only one who can righteously resolve his problems. Now think about that. There are a lot of things that you can fix. You can take care of business if you have to. But he's the only one that can often righteously resolve our issues. David understands that his greatest need 
is forgiveness for his sins. Affirming God's covenant faithfulness in verse 5. For you are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call on you. Steadfast love. Hesed that David Calvert preached so wonderfully about last week. Does this... Verse 5 reminds you a little bit of Romans 10, 13. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He is worthy of our trust. So I want to give you a moment just to read these verses, verses 4 to 7 silently, and to acknowledge in your heart that God is the first one you should approach when you are in trouble. If you believe in Jesus, he's already met your greatest need, the forgiveness of your sins. Considering his faithfulness, ask him to give you a heart of trust rather than the anxious and troubling thoughts that have demanded so much of your emotional and physical energy. And spiritual energy these last days and weeks and even months. So take a moment. Just let these verses sink in. Verse 7, in the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you answer me. Amen. Well, David uses the name Yahweh four times in Psalm 86. He uses the word or the name Adonai seven times to express his trust in God's sovereignty over all things that happen. Verse 8 is not saying that other gods exist, but that the God of Israel is greater than the false gods or the idols that other nations go to when they're in trouble. Even though most people you know don't bow before statues and worship idols, a lot of them worship a bank account or a political philosophy or online Success, there are idols everywhere. When you find yourself in big trouble, idols will prove to be unreliable. Now think about this. The younger you are, the harder you need to think about this. So much of what the world affirms and lives for is unsustainable. Only what you learn from here and hold on to will carry you through. One day, verse 9, not only will the nations yield to God's sovereignty, but they will bow in worship. The great and wondrous things of verse 10 usually refers to God's miracle of salvation. And that ought to be a lot of encouragement to those of you who have loved ones that don't know Jesus or loved ones who have walked away from the Lord. God is ready and able to save always. Able and ready to save. In verse 11, 
When David asked the Lord to unite his heart to fear the Lord's name, what if we just sat and thought about that for a bit? wonder what you'd come up with. What do you think he's saying? Unite my heart to fear your name. Well, he's asking the Lord to keep his heart pure and focused on him. It's the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 7 and Galatians 5, where Paul freely acknowledges the struggle between flesh and spirit. The proper fear of the Lord is largely lost in our day. Believers tend to be either utterly unafraid of God, like, yeah, everything's good. Or they're terrified of him. Because when you know about God and you got questions going on in your mind and you don't fear him in the proper way, then you can be really afraid of God. A healthy fear of the Lord, though, is more averse to disappointing Jesus than it is attracted to sin. It's not so much, I'm afraid of what God will do if I do this thing. It's like, I am afraid that I'm going to disappoint, that I'm going to hurt God. After all he's done for me, this love that he has for me. That's a proper fear of the Lord. Well, that's one part of the fear of the Lord. There's a little bit of terror that ought to be in all of us when we think about approaching God. Temptation is strong, though. And if God does not unite our hearts to fear his name, we're likely to yield to the flesh. When we fear the Lord, we recognize, verse 12, our privilege and responsibility to glorify the Lord. And who, why wouldn't we desire to glorify him when, verse 13, we understand the depth of God's deliverance? The depths of Sheol, the place of the dead, has no claim on us. Now, Old Testament saints did not have a full-orbed understanding of the afterlife. They had a sense about it. David seems to understand that God has delivered him from some permanent judgment, although soul in the Old Testament usually is referring to life. David would have understood physical deliverance as the highest evidence of God's faithfulness. But we understand that sometimes it is our love for the Lord and our service of him that gets us into the kind of trouble that may end this temporary life. Our hope and expectation is in the assurance of eternal life that is in Christ. In verse 14, we get a sense of the threat against David's life. And again, this is what makes his um, praise in the middle of the psalm so impressive. His praise was deliberate in the face of dangerous and even desperate circumstances. Even though David's persecutors were unjust. The one who depended so fully of the, on, the, on the Lord recalled Exodus 34, 6, maybe to remind himself that God had been patient with him and had forgiven his sins. Perhaps God would save even his enemies, which leads us to the last two verses that are worth reading again. Turn to me. And be gracious to me. 
Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, Yahweh, have helped me and comforted me. I'm going to guess that a lot of people, maybe even most people, would be sort of creeped out if they thought too long about the Lord gazing on them. You know, the Lord... Uh, I hear people, many people who walk away from the Lord talk about all the damage that the songs, be careful little hands what you do, you know, how much damage that that does to people because the Father up above is looking down. They don't see it in love. But the Lord looking on us, in His Word, the Lord looking on His people is a really good thing. In fact, it's a bad thing when he turns away from us. David longed for the Lord to turn to him because God's favor is in view when his face is on his people. And if that keeps you from doing something wrong, that's a mercy of God. It's a means of grace. That's one of the ways that he keeps you in this beautiful covenant relationship that he's given. It is all grace because our sin should keep a holy God from looking on us with favor. So when we read the Old Testament, we do so in view of the New Testament. And when David asked for a sign of God's favor, we understand that the ultimate sign of God's favor is what we remembered this morning. It's the cross. It's his love for us in sending his son to die in our stead. Does David's desire for his opponents to be put to shame remind you of Titus 2, where Paul told his believers to live in such a way that the accusers, the opponents of Christianity, will have nothing to say, and they will be ashamed. Both Titus 2 and Psalm 86 could have a a sense, in fact, it's a very real possibility that this desire for shame is an understanding the role that shame plays in our salvation. It leads us to repentance and on to faith. The cross of Jesus was in God's heart and mind before the foundations Of the world were laid. Why? Why did God plan the cross. Before man even fell. I don't know. You have to say like Paul in Romans 11. It's too big for me to understand. But I can tell you this. I know that I belong to him. And I know that somehow. In the craziness of this world. He reached down and yanked me out of that. Direction that I was going and put me into his family. And it's all different. And by the way, this not a really didn't intend to say this on, on the idea of predestination, choice, election. I'm not trying to make anybody's mind up. We all come to that decision sooner or later with our understanding of scripture. You, you have to do that. But I can tell you that 
If there was a day, it was on that very day that I finally just yielded and said, it's okay. It's okay that God chose me and I didn't have anything to do with it. That's kind of what Romans 9 says. That day, a lot of things, a lot of worries just kind of went away. Romans 9 does say, God chose you. You have nothing to do with that, so shut up. Don't even ask. Romans 10 says, if you don't go tell them, how can they be saved? We have to tell them. Romans 11 says, so the Jews had to go down so the Gentiles could come. Why is any of that so? Paul said, I don't don't know. All I know is that it's too marvelous for me, but it's beautiful indeed. What God has done. His ways are higher than our ways. Be suspicious of anybody who has every answer to every question. Be suspicious of any system of interpreting scripture that has all the verses. Oh, that's easy. You just make it fit like this. If we've got it all figured out, we're God. And we're not. We know that, right? Let's see. Where was I? So when you consider the perfect world that God created and the fall of man into sin and death, it's difficult to say with confidence why God thought of the cross before he created the earth. We know that it has to do with his glory. And even if that bothers you now, one day you're going to be singing his praises louder than anybody for his great plan. We know, as David has repeatedly acknowledged in Psalm 86, that God is sovereign and good in all his works. And we know on this side of the cross that while answers to life's pain and puzzles may elude us, our future is certain and our present is meaningful and joyful. Well, it's joyful when we follow David's Example and deliberately praise him in the middle of the problems. We come to him with problems and then we say, you know what? I'm just going to praise God. I'm going to trust the one who loves me. But I really do have these problems. (laughs) And I would appreciate your help, Lord. When you are uncertain of your salvation, Jesus' death on the cross assures you that when you believe, you belong to him. It's not you holding on to Jesus, it's Jesus holding on to you. For those who doubt, are you trusting anything other than Jesus for your salvation? I'm guessing your answer is no. Well, then according to the scripture, you belong to him. His covenant love is focused on you. For those who are tempted to a life of sin or little play times with sin. And those who seek meaning in life apart from Jesus and his cross. Just surrender. Rest in the knowledge that Jesus gave his all for you. He didn't turn back. When he was in the garden and he said, Lord, if there's any other way. The silence of heaven indicated the Father's love for you. And Jesus endured 
for the joy that was set before him, for God's glory, for the praise of the Father, for our salvation. It's all wrapped up in Hebrews 12. For those of you who are overwhelmed with sorrow, know that Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane, recognizing what was before him. It wasn't so much that he was going to endure this horrific physical pain, but he knew that when he would be lifted up on the cross, that the Father, who had looked with perfect communion upon his Son for eternity, the elders have just read a book, Delighting in the Trinity. You'll probably hear more about it. And, and think about what God was doing for all eternity before creation. Father, Son, and Spirit were loving one another. But he knew that when he hung on the cross, that the Father would turn away from him. But he turned away from the Son so that he could turn toward us. He couldn't turn to us unless he turned away from Jesus. Why? Quit trying to be God. I, I mean, yes, it's good to think about it. But it's beyond us. And it is beautiful indeed. When the Father turns to us, he sees his perfect son. And he's pleased. Oh, I've been so. If you're in Jesus, he's pleased. By all means, repent and move back to him. The cross along with Jesus' resurrection is the sign of God's favor to his people. For those of you who are tempted to think that life has been unfair, that God has been unfair or unloving because of your circumstances, measure God's love for you. By the cross of Christ. Imagine that you're asking God. Really? Why? Why are you allowing this? But imagine that you're looking at the cross. And, and the father's on the other side of the cross. And I think you have your answer. We can't, we can't say this is completely unfair to me. I thought you loved me God. No. I, he does love us. It's in the cross. No wonder Paul said, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of Christ. We've remembered Jesus' death for us at the Lord's Supper this morning. And never, ever, as Jeff said beautifully, don't, do not take this time of remembrance and this participation with the Lord's body and blood according to 1 Corinthians 10. What does that mean? I don't know and you don't either. But don't take this time. For granted. It is in the cross of Christ. That we rest. And so let us. Give thanks. Would you pray with me. Sovereign God. Yahweh. Thank you for the sign of your favor. Toward us that we find in the cross of Christ. We only understand because you opened our eyes to see your glory in such a, a, death, a, a death horrific enough 
in the details of crucifixion, but terrible beyond our ability to comprehend. When we consider that you poured out the wrath that we deserved on your beloved son. Who knew that such horror could lead to our deliverance? We don't understand, but we thank you and praise you for your marvelous plan. While your heads are bowed, I just want to speak to those of you who may be wondering maybe why you even chose to come this morning. Perhaps you felt the need to be close to God in a difficult time personally or that our nation or whatever. Or maybe you needed some answers. One thing is for certain, it's no accident that you're here today. Before time began, God determined that you would be in this place on this day. And if the Lord has opened your heart to understand that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Would you open your heart to him? You know you have no goodness that would attract the Lord's attention. You, you have not enough strength to be who you need to be. The good news is, <laughs> Jesus was good enough. So, so tell God that you're a sinner. Ask him to forgive your sins for Jesus' sake. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Father, thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you for bringing us into your family Through Jesus. And thank you for your word. That tells us and assures us of your love for us. And thank you for the design that brings us together every Sunday to remind us. The way. That you love us and the privileges that we enjoy as children. Of God. We give you praise even as the world around us falls apart. Even as our worlds fall apart. Strengthen our hearts and encourage us, Lord, as we leave this place. Church gathered, church scattered, we love you and your plan. We don't love everything that happens, but we love you. So, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all that it represents. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand for the benediction? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.